back in the book of Mark. We are, you know, Mark is just divided up in this very unique way. So the first half of Mark is the first two and a half years of Jesus's ministry, essentially. The last half of the book of Mark is almost exclusively the last week of Jesus's life. And that's where we are now. We're in the very last week of his life. We're going to call this sermon rent to own rent to own. And you'll understand why. Have any of you ever had a bad roommate ever in your lives? Yeah. Any of you ever been a bad roommate? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah, we have to be careful about talking about our roommates because then they can talk about us. Right. Um, I, I lived, uh, for a while in California and I had at one point I lived in a big house and there were six guys living in this house, six single guys living together in the same house. It was bad news. It was just bad news all the way around. And um, some of the roommates were, you know, not as clean as you would like. Um, we had one roommate who he would come home late at night. You could The stereo would come on. You know, you don't know what was going on out there. You come out in the morning, the kitchen is like a mess. He's been making chicken fingers and pans and there's pizza boxes and it's just gross. I mean, it's just gross. And, um, at one point this, this particular roommate, uh, decided and told us that he was going to go on a trip back to the Midwest to see his family. Well, apparently, uh, he decided to supplement the travel expenses by carrying a 40 pound bag of an illegal substance across the United States. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, it was a leafy substance. Okay. If there are any, you know, so, um, apparently he was pulled over at one point and, um, was, was, was taken into custody. And the, the, the good thing that, that ter- came out of that is that he ended up with a place that he didn't have to pay rent at all. Um, it was room and board fully supplied as well as clothing. So yeah, he made off really well there. So we've all had these kinds of, of, of roommates. Um, this, this passage is about some tenants, some tenants, uh, that rent a piece of property and, 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 you know, that they're commonly known as the wicked tenants or throughout the, you know, if you hear them reference, it's like the wicked tenants, the murderous tenants. Um, these guys in the story we're about to read will make your nightmare rental stories sound, you know, tame by comparison. All right. Um, but nevertheless, I wanted to read you one interesting story I found online. Uh, a news website had sent out an, uh, a notice, and it said, if you're, if, you're a, if you're a landlord and you have some nightmare tenant stories, send them in. We want to read them. So I'm just going to – there were a bunch of them. Some of them were a little too graphic for church, but I'm going to read you this one because I think it's kind of funny. So this guy, this person calls himself Taken in Tulsa, and he writes, We had renters highly recommended by family and by friends from our church. Yikes. Uh, these renters glued pennies to the walls, stuffed Cheetos into the shutters, stapled small pieces of cardboard to the inside window facings, disassembled the outdoor flower bed and brought all the bricks inside the house, poured water into the floor furnace, causing it to rust, used the drapery for cleaning rags, used wood staples to anchor a large outdoor inflatable toy inside the living room and left their drug paraphernalia in the closet when they moved. Wish we had required a larger security deposit. Um, so yeah, so there are nightmare tenants, um, and Jesus tells a story about tenants in this scripture. Now, before we jump into the passage, I just want to set the, the context. Remember Jesus now is inside the temple. 
He's in the temple. It's Passover week, okay? All uh, Israelites and, and Jews from all over the world have gathered back. Literally hundreds of thousands of people have gathered into Jerusalem, and they've come to the temple for Passover to sacrifice their offerings to the Lord and to celebrate Passover. Jesus, if you remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about he went into the temple. He was furious. He drove out the money changers. He threw over the tables that they were, they were selling pigeons and they were selling doves and they, and they were selling sheep. And he took a cat of nine tails, literally a bull whip, and drove these guys out of the temple and said, you have turned my house, the house of prayer, into a den of thieves. And he absolutely took charge of the temple. So in this passage, he's in the temple now. It's, it looks like it's the next day, but it's, it's shortly after this cleansing of the temple. Um, and the, the uh, Sanhedrin, the leaders, the political and religious elite, the priests of the temple have come to him. And they asked him, if you remember last week, they said, by what authority do you come into the temple and do this? By what authority, who gives you the authority to come and tear the temple up like this? And he catches them in a, in a sort of a word play. And he asks them, was John the Baptist from God or was John the Baptist from man? And John the Baptist, if you remember, was a prophet of God and was actually Jesus's cousin. Um, and the Pharisees and the, and the Sanhedrin were afraid to answer because if they said, he was from God, then Jesus would say, why didn't you follow him? And if they said he was from man, then they knew that the people would rebel against them because all of the people over which they had authority believed in John the Baptist. And so they didn't want to lose face with the crowd. And so they said, we don't know. Um, and then Jesus said, then I'm not going to tell you the, by what authority I'm teaching. Okay. And so he caught them in their own sort of trap. And then they, then uh, he started teaching them in parables. Now, generally, when Jesus teaches in parables, sometimes he would teach in parables to purposely obscure the message that he was trying to communicate from certain people. So he would teach in these sort of veiled, paradoxical stories so that certain people would not understand him and that others would. But this is not one of those parables. This is a parable that he teaches. He wants his enemies to explicitly understand what he's trying to say in this parable. Okay. And he's actually in a way taunting his enemies in this parable. It's really, it's really an intense parable. So let's get into it. Okay. So Mark 12 chapter, uh, chapter 12 verses one through 12. And he began, Jesus began to speak to them in parables. And here's the parable. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased the land to the tenants and went into another country. When the season came, the man sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And the tenants took the servant and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, the man sent to them another servant, and they struck that servant on the head and treated him shamefully. And so the man sent another servant, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. The man had one other a beloved son. And the man, uh, finally, the man sent him, the son, to the tenants, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, 
This is the heir, the heir to the property that we're on. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, the son, the beloved son, and they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What Jesus now turns after telling this parable to the to the religious leaders and says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? They don't answer. Jesus answers for them. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? Quote, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And the religious leaders were seeking to arrest him. They wanted to arrest him after hearing this story. But they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. Very insightful. They perceived that he had told the parable against them, so they left him and went away. This is a story of greed murder, revenge. Um, and as we get to the end of it, we'll find that it's also a story about love and ultimately a story of redemption. Um, I want to give you quickly before we sort of dive into the meaning of it, just a mental picture of what's going on in the story. Um, so in, in ancient Israel, there was a viticulture or winemaking was a very um, common way of life. Um, the rich fertile soil there in Israel provided good ground to make uh, grapes and to, and to make wine. So this is a picture of um, a vineyard, kind of what, what the ancient Israelites would have thought of when Jesus was talking. This is a picture of, of a vineyard in Israel. If you go to the next slide, Charles, so it, and the, the scripture says, and this man, he, he, he built this vineyard and he built a fence around it. So he, he put a large sort of probably stone fence around the entire vineyard. And then it says he built a tower. Now this is an old ruin of what they would call a a tower or a watchtower that would be in these vineyards. And what you would do is they'd build these tall towers. And then, um, the people who watched the vineyard could go up in the tower and they could watch for, um, if there were animals or if there were enemies, you know, animals that would come and eat the grapes, or if there were enemies that would come, they'd be able to see it from these towers. And then it says, and he built a wine press. And th- this is interesting because they've literally unearthed, archaeologists have, have, uh, have unearthed hundreds of these throughout ancient Israel. And, and the way it works is, and this is sort of an aerial view, okay? So if you imagine you're looking right down on top of it. Um, I hope I'm not blocking you guys. But there's a, this, this hole right here, this round part, is, is, is the, the fermentation pit. So what they would do, these see little square parts up there? These little rectangle parts? Those are called crush pads. And what they would do is when they would, they would take the grapes, they would harvest the grapes, and they would put the grapes in these little shallow um, crush pads, and then they would walk on them, okay, and squeeze the grapes out, and the, and the juice um, from the grapes would run down the little uh, alley there, you see, and run down into that pit. Click on that next one, Charles. This gives a slightly different angle, and you, you might be able to see it better. You see where there's a little bit of water there in that crush pad? So that what they would do is they would step on the grapes there, and um, very clean feet, by the way, very clean feet. And then and it would run down into the fermentation pits, and then it, it would ferment down there in the pit for a while. And then what they would do is they would take goat skin uh, that they had sewed together, and they would pull the wine out of the goat skin, 
and then they would tie it off and it would continue to ferment in there and it would release certain gases and so forth. And these, ga- uh, these goat skins would expand until they had expanded, you know, until the, the fermentation process was done and then they would have wine. That's how they made wine. And if you remember, there was a parable or there was a parable. I don't know if we've even talked about it yet, but we will, um, where Jesus says, you don't put new wine in old goat skins, you know, because these goat skins had expanded and they get really hard. You put new wine in and then they're boom, they're going to burst. Okay. So that's how they, that's how they made wine and that's how they made their living. So what would happen is a person who owned property would have tenant farmers come and they would, they would husband the land. They would, um, they would steward the land. So they would be tenants what they would do is they would grow the grapes, they would work the soil, they would produce the crops, they would make the wine, and then they would get to keep a portion of that to sell for their own profit, and then they would also pay their rent to the owner by providing the owner with the fruit of the land, whatever it is. So in this case, it would be grapes or wine. Um, you know, if it was a different kind of agriculture, it'd be wheat or, or whatever it was. Um, and so Jesus is saying, all right, so there was a man that built all this, set up this whole thing and then rented it out to tenants for them to steward. And then when he came after the year, after the, the time that the, that the wine had grown and fermented and everything, and he came to collect the tenants beat him and said, we're not paying you rent. The master is in a faraway country. The owner is in a faraway land. What's he going to do? What are you going to do? We're all here. You're one servant. And they threw him out. Um, Let's talk just a little bit about the different characters in the story. And some of this is probably self-evident, but it's, it might as well just talk about it for a moment. The owner in the story, the owner in the story is God. All right. Whenever, whenever Jesus tells a parable and he starts with, there once was a great master or there once was a noble man or there once was a, a loving father or whatever, you can pretty much rest assured he's talking about God. Okay. So he starts off this parable with, with there once was an owner of property. He's talking about God, the vineyard. This is interesting. The vineyard in this passage, Jesus is referring back to a uh, passage in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter five, verse seven, um, that says for the vineyard of the Lord is the house of Israel. So what, when, when he's talking about the vineyard, he's, it's not just a geographic location. He's talking about a special relationship between God and a specific people. Okay, he's talking about um, a covenant between people where God is their God and he is their people. And he says this owner created this world where he entered into a relationship with a certain group of people. Okay, so this is what he's saying. Um, Also, Jesus, sometimes when he's talking about a vineyard, sometimes he's just referring to the whole world. Okay, so in this case, he's talking about the world that God created and specifically about a certain relationship that that God formed with a certain group of people. Okay. The tenants. Now the, the Sanhedrin already figured out who the tenants are in this story. It's them. It's the religious leaders. It's the, uh, elite, the political religious elite of the day. All right. They are the ones that were put in charge of watching over the relationship between God and his people. They are there to help the people become productive to, to uh, worship God and to honor and glorify God with their praise and with their first fruits and with their worship. The, the, the priests and the Levites and the Sanhedrin, that was their job. But Jesus is saying, you're not doing your job. You're actually, when, when, this, when God sends the servants to come and collect what God is owed, 
You're killing the servants. Who are the servants? The servants throughout the scripture are God's prophets. Throughout the ancient Israelite um, text, throughout the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament, God over and over says, I'm sending you my servant, the prophet. This servant, the prophet. And um, I'll give you an example. Um, Jeremiah seven twenty five says, From the time your forefathers left Egypt until now, day after day, and again and again and again, I sent you the servant, your prophets. Second Kings twenty one ten. The Lord spoke through His servants, the prophets. The, um, and in Amos three seven, He says, Surely the Sovereign Lord does nothing without really revealing His plan to His servant, the prophets. So what Jesus is saying is, God created this world. He put these people in it. He formed a relationship with these people. He gave the tenancy over, the stewardship over to the leaders, the religious leaders, the political and religious leaders, the priests, the, the rabbis of the day. And then he sent his servants to come and remind them that who God is. And these tenants keep kicking out the servants. And finally, of course, when, he, when it says he sent his, the, the owner sent his beloved son we know that Jesus is referring to himself. First of all, it's reminiscent of the two passages that we've already gone over. The beloved son. Remember when Jesus was baptized at the very beginning of, of our time together. Um, it said, uh, the, the scripture said um, that a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And same way on, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is referred to as the beloved son. Okay, so, uh, uh, you know, so we've got all these characters. Are we still, are we, are we tracking? <laughs> Have I gotten to, uh, okay. So Jesus is telling this story, and basically the story is this. God created the world and everything in it, and he made it right for you, and he built things for you, and he created it so that you could be productive, so you could be happy and comfortable and well taken care of yourself. And all you have to do is give God the glory, give him the honor, give him the praise for what you have, for what he's given you. That's all you have to do. And if you forget to do that, God is going to send a prophet and the prophet's going to say, God, thus saith the Lord. And he's going to tell you what you're doing wrong and what you're doing right. And then you're going to listen to him and you're going to conform and, and reorient your conduct in your life according to God's word, right? But, Jesus says, every time he sends a prophet, you kill him. You beat him and throw him out. You don't listen to him. The tenants, these priests and elders, they don't want to listen to God because when God comes in, when Jesus comes in, this is the fascinating sort of behind-the-scenes political thing at work, all right? When Jesus comes in and starts telling the people how things really are, that threatens to upset the balance of power that exists in Israel at that time. The priests have control of the money. They have control of the politics. They have control of the temple. They have control of everything. They've got it dialed into a T. You want to come in and make a sacrifice? No problem. We'll do a little exchange of money. We'll take our 10% cut. We'll give you a, 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 you know, a pigeon that you can sacrifice at 10 times the rate that it would cost you to buy it in the market. But the ones in the market are not pure, so you can't sacrifice those. You have to buy them from us, okay? It's kind of like, you know, Disneyland. You go in, you want a glass of water, it's $14. You know, what are you going to do? You're stuck. So there, and, and, and so Jesus is saying, look, you're, you're, you're stealing from the poor, you're taking money, you're gouging my people, you're turning my house, which is a house of prayer, into a den of thieves, and I've had enough. And, and, and he says, and then, after you've killed the prophets, God says, I am going to send my son. Surely they'll listen to my son. 
Surely my son will have authority. And he sends his son. And what's amazing about this, remember you guys, Jesus is telling this story literally days before he is hung out to dry. Days before he is nailed to a cross. He is forecasting and foreshadowing and predicting what's about to happen in literally just a few days from now. And he says, and what you're going to do, and he tells him, what you are going to do is you are going to kill the son and you're going to throw him out of the vineyard. And then he says, but what is God going to do when you do that? What would you do if someone murdered your son? What does the, what does the father of a murdered son do? He comes and he finds the ones who killed his son. And in this story, he says he drives them out. He destroys them and he opens the vineyard to others. So what's fascinating is that they, th- these tenants radically miscalculate the owner because what they say is if we kill the son, then there'll be no heir to the property, right? So then we being possessors of the property, possessions, nine tenths of the law, right? We're the possessors of the property. There's no heir. We will get to inherit the property. Woeful miscalculation, bad, bad decision. Um, okay. So do we have the context? We have the idea here. What does the parable mean for us? How do we translate this like amazing parable into our lives? What I think a huge part of what this parable is trying to teach us is that Christ is calling us to radically reorient our understanding of our relationship to him and radically reorient our understanding of our relationship to the world, our understanding of our own life. And I'll explain how. How many knows that if you're orient, if, you, if, if you're, if you're misoriented, if you've got a map and you're trying to orient yourself and you start going the wrong direction, you can end up a long, you can just start going a little bit off and you can end up a long, long way from where you're supposed to be. Right. I have a group uh, of guys that I, every year, I don't know why we do it, but every December we engage in this bizarre ritual called an adventure race. It's an eight hour race. It includes mountaineering or orienteering through the woods. Okay. It entails canoeing down the Merrimack river in December, mind you. And it, in, it entails uh, mountain biking and it's an eight hour race. It's a, it's an endurance race. And there's, I'm, I'm, there's a four man team. I'm one of the members of the team. We call ourselves diesel manpower. That is a masculine name and we like it. It might be a little over the top, but that's what we call ourselves. Okay. Diesel manpower. Um, we're very, we're very famous in very, very small circles. Um, so every year me and my buddies, we get, we get together and we join this team, diesel manpower, and we go out to, uh, way far West here. What is that? Castlewood go out to Castlewood. My wife knows because she, she has to make my little sack lunch and get all my stuff together and all that. So we go out to Castlewood, uh, and we perform this, this feat of bravery and power. Um, and the main person in the team, on the team, the most important person on the team is the guy who does the orienteering, the guy with the map and the compass. Okay. Me, I'm just one of the brute characters. I'm just, I did, they just need a warm body that can cross the finish line. That's my role. 
warm body, cross the finish line. But we do have a guy on our team who is his, he's, he's, he's very, he's very small. He's very thin, but he's very smart. And he's got this map and he, and he's got a compass and they have the map and they have it covered in like a piece of plastic. He's got this compass hanging around his neck and we're out in the woods. There's not trails. You have to go find these check marks. Okay. And the check marks about this big and it's hanging from a tree out in the middle of nowhere. Um, so you have this map and it's topographical map and the guy takes the compass and he lays it on top of the map and he says, all right, we need to go that way. And we all say, we're right behind you. Nobody, nobody interferes. Nobody says, well, I think it, nobody does that. We have one guy. That's his job. He says, we go that way. That's the way we go. If he is off by one degree, if he is off by half a degree in two miles or three miles or five miles, wherever that next check, checkpoint is, we're going to be hundreds of yards away from our destination. And like I said, the mark, the marker is only like this big. So you're not going to find it in the woods. All right. So if you are off just a tiny bit, you're in bad, bad shape. We actually do relatively well as a team in these competitions, not because we're all great athletes because we're not, but we do have one guy who gets us to the mark. So you can have these guys that are incredible athletes, but if they get off one degree, they're running around, they're sprinting around the, the woods with all their health and robustness, but they're lost. Okay. We're, we're at our spot. We might be a little, have a little extra pudge around the belly, whatever, but we, we find our mark. Okay. All right. So Christ wants us to reorient our lives, to, to, to think of ourselves in the right way, to understand our position in the world in relation to our life and in relation to God. And so there are two sort of two ways to think of yourself in this story. One is you can think of yourself as an owner of the property that God gave you, in which case you try to forget and ignore that there's an actual owner. That's what these guys in the story did. They tried to say, we're the owners. We're going to own this. We're going to be the heirs. We're going to own it. The owner sends his guys to come and collect. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to stiff arm them. We don't want those guys in our life. We're going to be the owners. And so we can have a heart in this story. We can have a heart of a false owner about our own life. We can think that this life belongs to us. It wasn't given to us. We own it. It's ours. We can think that there's nothing beyond us that gave us our breath, that gave us our heartbeat, that gave us our intelligence, our strength, our will, our, the house over our head, our friends, our family. We can think that there's not an owner and that we, we own it. It's us. It's, uh, we, get to, we get to own it. But having this sort of sense this false ownership mentality leads to a few things that I want to just briefly touch on. One is it, le it leads to a form of nihilism, a sense of meaninglessness, a sense of there's nothing beyond us. There's no intrinsic value to anything. Everything is relative. There's, there's, it, morality is strictly an abstraction that we created and developed ourselves. There's no real right or wrong. There's no real justice. There's no good or evil. Might is right. If I can, if I can do it without getting caught, I'm good, right? This is the will to power. This is, a, this is a sense that there is absolutely nothing outside of us that has any say 
on who we are and what we are to do. We don't owe anybody anything, right? This is us. We own it. And if somebody tries to take it, as long as we're stronger than them, as long as we can beat them and throw them out, that's fine, right? This is existential nihilism. This is what, this is this sense of total meaningless, total abstraction. Um, everything is abstractly contrived. This leads to a worldview that is completely vacuous, that is completely hollow without any purpose or value. There's no, there's absolutely no meaning to life in this worldview. There's no meaning. You're here, you're carbon, you live, you procreate, you die, you're done. That's, that is part of the sort of, um, outcome of having a false owner mentality in the world. Are you tracking? Does that make sense? Another sort of attitude that arises out of this is a, is a selfishness. All right. If you don't believe in original sin, the, the doctrine of original sin, you need to hang out with a three-year-old for a few hours because they will demonstrate unequivocally to you that we are born with a selfish nature. Um, we have two boys. Uh, and if they're having, you know, if we're trying to figure out something to do with them and they're just like not having a good day, there's a dollar store behind our house. And all you have to do to entertain these two boys is go to the dollar store and you can buy two balloons, helium balloons. Is it a dollar each, babe? Or 50 cents each? It's like a dollar each? A dollar each for these balloons. And somehow they love these balloons. They're shiny. And they always say weird things on them, but our kids don't know what they say. So it'll say, happy graduation. It's a boy, you know. And uh, they're walking around with these balloons and people are going, oh, are you? Oh, okay. Um, So... But so not long ago, we, we, we did this, you know, we got the two balloons and one for James and one for Lincoln. They're both perfectly happy. Um, then they were playing outside on the little hill by our house. Uh, and somehow their balloons crossed paths, crossed lines, you know, and one of their, one of the balloons came off the string. All right. And that balloon went floating up, up and away. And it was as if the world had ended. You want to see two boys crying. Actually, it was just Jameson that was crying because it was his balloon. But I mean weeping. I mean bitter tears, just sobbing, right? And so then we said, well, that's okay. Let's share the one balloon. Let's share the one balloon, right? No. Later on that day, they're in the playroom. I'm in my office trying to, trying to study, and I just hear them. Mine, mine. Mine. No, mine. Mine. I mean, mine. It's like, and, I, and I'm sitting there thinking, wait a second. Actually, I'm the one that bought the balloon, all right? <laughs> this isn't either of yours, okay? So I go out, and I try to get them to share. That's not going well. So I go, all right, we're, ta- we're, we're, we're removing the balloon from the equation right now, okay? So I take the balloon, and I put it in the closet of my office, and that's actually where it is today. It's been there for several weeks now, floating, hovering at about this high. Children implicitly, and, and, and we as human beings implicitly, we are born with this ownership mentality. It's mine. It's mine. And even when it's so abundantly clear to everyone around you that it's not yours, that it was a free gift that was given to you by someone else, we have this, this fiction that somehow it's ours. We're the owners. We get to own it, and it generates a selfishness in us, a deep selfishness where we care only for ourselves. We don't care for others. We are not interested in the, in the uh, well, 
uh, we're not interested in, in others at all. We're not interested in their well-being. We're only interested in ourselves. Number three is it creates a sense of greed w- with us when we have this ownership mentality, okay? And the greed, have any of you ever seen American Greed, the television show? No? I'm the only one. Oh, Liz, okay. Um, yeah, there's this show on TV, and it's, I don't recommend it, but uh, it's basically the same story with different players. It always documents someone who has overreached, someone who has decided that what they're earning is not enough. They've got to rip somebody off. They've got to go out and find a way to get more. They've got to accumulate more and more. They have the intention of just amassing items to themselves, right? And we can do this. We don't have to do this just with things. We can do this with relationships. We can do this with knowledge. We can do this with our sense of pride. You know, we have to amass all the glory to ourselves so it doesn't go to anyone else. We, we can be greedy in a number of different ways, but it comes from this ownership mentality, ownership of life. We own, we own everything. We want more. We want to own more, right? And we want to box it in and we want to keep it to ourselves, right? Um, Socrates, I put this in your bulletin, says he who is not contented with what he has would not be contented with what he would like to have. You know, if you're not contented with where you're at, you think if I could just have this or if I could just have that, guess what? You will not be content with just this or just that. Contentment is a state of heart. It's a state of mind. It has nothing to do with what you have or don't have. All right. Because whatever you want after you get it, you're going to want something else. Um, uh, this writer, Jan Willem van der, van der Wettering, says, Greed is a fat demon with a small mouth, and whatever you feed it is never enough. I love that image. It's a fat little demon with a little tiny mouth, and you just can't feed it enough because it still wants more. Um, I love what C.S. Lewis says about this. He says, And out of this hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. That's what we have. That's who we are when we don't realize that everything that God, everything that we have is a gift from God. When we think that we own it, that we deserve it, that it belongs to us, we develop this bizarre greed, this desire to accumulate more, and we will never, ever be satisfied. Let me contrast that with reorienting our hearts towards a good steward, towards a good tenant. The heart of a steward or the heart of a good tenant, and I won't take long with this, but this mentality, when we have the mentality in our minds that, hey, this doesn't belong to me, this is a gift from God. My life is a gift from God. We, this reorients our minds. This helps us to see ourselves in a different light. It helps us to see each other in a different light. It helps us to see God in a different light. Um, and in the, in the first respect, it helps us to be grateful. When we know that everything that we've got is a gift from God, we're deeply grateful. We become deeply grateful. When we're cognizant of that, you know, I've said this before, but when I very first sort of came to Christ, came to God, the first true rush of sensation that I had was gratitude. Right after I was mortally embarrassed about my past and, and then found forgiveness, my next feeling and sensation was gratitude. I don't deserve everything. I don't deserve anything that I've gotten. I didn't do anything to be born. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't 
do anything to receive the blessings that I've gotten. Everything, literally everything that you have is a gift from God. You say, well, wait, that's a result of my intelligence. Who gave you that intelligence? That's a result of my hard work. But who gave you the body and the will and the ability to work like that? When you trace it back, everything that you are, everything that you have, every good thing in your life is a gift from God. Every single thing. So you've got to come to God with a, 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 an open thanksgiving, a sense of deep gratitude. If you are ever feeling testy and angry and upset or, you know, you're feeling like you're not getting what you deserve, just stop for one second and say, wait a minute. <sighs> Thanks for that. Thanks for that breath. Because I didn't do anything to get that breath. And yet I've got it. Colossians 3.17 says, and whatever you do, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God, the Father, through him. Everything you do, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. I love stepping back to the prayer team. They meet every week before service. They don't even know I'm coming in there. They're all praying, and I'm standing in the back, just hands in my pockets, and they're just saying, thank you, Lord. I know I've said that before. I love that. Thank you for thanking God, prayer team. Um, gratitude. Number two, productivity. When we live our lives to the glory of God, we cannot help but to produce good fruit in the vineyard of life. We can't help it. Can I brag on somebody in this congregation for just a moment? Can I brag? Is that okay? Okay. Uh, do, do any of you know Mother Ray over here? Mother Ray, raise your hand. Just, I'm not, I don't mean to embarrass you, okay? But, but, but Mother, Ray, Mother Ray just got a write-up in, uh, in uh, Grace Hill Health Center newsletter. It says, uh, in recognition of National Volunteers Month, GHHC proudly acknowledged the contribution made to our mission by Ms. Beatrice Ray. She is affectionately known, uh, Miss Ray, as she is affectionately known, we call her Mother Ray. I guess that's okay, too. Is that all right, Mother Ray? Um, uh, began volunteering as a greeter, and then it gives the history of her time there. Um, and then it says, Ms. Ray provides outstanding customer service and greets everyone with a smile. Then it says, she is an active member of the University City Family Church. Come on. <laughs> and she enjoys crocheting. Okay. <laughs> um, it also says she is a proud mother of five children, 38 grandchildren, 72 great-grandchildren, and two great-great-grandchildren. Congratulations, Ms. Ray, and thank you. This is a person who is giving their life to the productivity to help others in the for the glory of God. She's reaching out and trying to help others. And you know what? And you know what? There are a lot of people in this congregation doing that. I don't even have time to go through and name names, but there are people that are working around the clock to make this church possible, to make this service possible, to reach out and help the community. And I just want you to know that you are deeply appreciated. All right. Um, productivity. Matthew 12, 33, 35. Jesus says, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. A good man brings good things 
out of the good stored up in him. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. Jesus is saying, be fruitful. You're the vineyard. Make fruit. Be, be productive. Give honor to God. Give glory to God with the work of your hands. Everything your hands find to do, do it as unto the Lord. That's, that is Colossians 3. Uh, whatever your hands find to do, do it heartily. Do it with all your might and do it as unto the Lord. Because when we are tenants, when we are tenants, when we're stewards of life and not owners, when we're stewards of what God has given us, then we want to be productive and we want to and we want to do our very best to be productive for God's glory. Amen. Not because we need to, not because we're a works-based tradition or anything like that, but out of the abundance of our gratitude to God. All right. And number three is generosity. When we know that none of this is ours, we are free to expend it to the glory of God. Um, Luke, and this isn't, this is, this is not just money. This is money, time, skills, resources, reaching out, giving people of your life, giving your life to other people, pouring it out, wringing it out. As we've said before, ring it out because when you do, you are filled back up more than you could have ever imagined. Luke six says, judge not, and you'll not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven, right? All of these basic principles of life. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. When you give out of your life, you fill up much more than you could have possibly filled up if you hadn't given out. If you don't give out, you just become withered and dry and, and you become completely useless. You become, there's no juice. There's no juice in the grape. If you give it out, you are filled back up. Proverbs eleven twenty four and 25 says, One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. That is a, ba- you don't have to be a Christian to understand this principle, to be a part of this, to engage in this principle in your own life, in your relationship. If you want a good relationship with your wife, men love your wife, show her love, demonstrate your love for her, because when you give that, it comes back to you. Okay. And same and, and, and same way in any relationship, give my dad used to always say to, to, to married couples, he would say, the grass is always greener on the side that gets the water. <laughs> so if you want your relationship to be bountiful and full and rich, pour your life into it. You know, if you want to have a deep, wonderful, abide, loving relationship with God, give yourself to your relationship with God. If you want to be part of a great, dynamic, growing, powerful church, give yourself to the, to the work of the church, right? Okay. Um, so these are the attributes that happen to us. This is what happens to us when we orient ourselves, not as false owners of life, but as stewards and tenants of what God has for us. Now, <clears throat> one character in the parable, and I'm going to close with this one parable in the character that we haven't, uh, we haven't described and defined. Let's go back to verse six. He had still one other, a beloved son. We know who that is. Finally, the owner sent him to them 
saying, they, the tenants, will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. Next, next one, Charles. What will the owner do? What will the owner of the vineyard do? And here's the answer. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Who are the others? Who gets the vineyard? The others, Jesus is saying, the others are you and me. He is throwing open the vineyard of the relationship between God and man to every single person who will walk towards him. Every single person who will take a step towards God is walking into the vineyard. The gate is open. It's no more an exclusive club. The gate is open. You will be invited into the vineyard of the relationship between God and man. This is for you. You are the others. Uh, And then he says, have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The tenants believe that by killing the son, they would inherit the vineyard. God says, no, you don't inherit the vineyard. I'm throwing you out. I'm opening the vineyard to others. The others are us. When Christ becomes the cornerstone of your life, not your own wealth, not your own power or authority or beauty or relationships or anything else gets in the way. When Christ becomes the cornerstone of your life, the absolute cornerstone, the foundation of your life, you are invited into a deep and amazing relationship with God. Now, here's the part that I just absolutely love. This heirship, this property rights, transfer of property rights. If God, you know, if if we kill the son, we get to own the property. What Jesus is saying is no By the death of the son, now this is deep, okay, so hang on to this. By the death of the son, Jesus is opening up the possibility that you and I become the sons and daughters of God. We become the heirs to God's kingdom. That's what he's saying, is when the son dies, we become joint heirs with Christ. Let me read you this passage because this is going to blow your mind. Romans 8, 14 through 17. This is it. This is, this is the end. For those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption. Your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs or joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. He throws open the door and says, come in. I don't want you to come in as slaves. I want you to come in as my kids. Come in as my children. Become God's child. You know, when Jesus teaches us how to pray, he doesn't say, pray like this, great master. No. He says, pray like this, our father, our father who art in heaven. In closing, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, know that you are invited today into an intimate, loving, deep, 
and powerful relationship with the one who controls the universe. The gates of the vineyard have been thrown open to you by the suffering and death of God's son. And as a result of his sacrifice, God has opened the gates of his vineyard to you and to, and to me that you and I might become his sons and his daughters. Perhaps today you're outside of the vineyard looking in. You're wondering what it would be like to participate as a child in the vineyard. Perhaps today you are in the vineyard, you're a tenant, but you have forgotten or drifted away from what it means to really be tending the garden for God. Perhaps you've forgotten, you've drifted from your sense of mission, but you want it back. Wherever you find yourself in this story, know that God is reaching out to you. He's reaching out to you by his word, by the people in your life, by the circumstances in your life, through the teaching of this church. He's reaching out to you and he's calling you. He's inviting you to become his child, to produce good fruit out of the abundance of your gratitude to him. He's calling you to serve. He's calling you to love. He's calling you to a life greater than you could possibly imagine. As we pray, let me encourage you. Let me challenge you. Open your heart to him. Open your heart. Just crack it open a little bit and say, God, if you're there, come in. Answer his call. Accept him. Believe on him. Join him. And then join your brothers and sisters all around the globe to restore, renew, and redeem this beautiful vineyard that he has built for you and for me. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.